Let's pray and see where the Lord takes us tonight. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you for your help tonight. And pray, Lord, for grace. Grace to hear and grace to communicate your word. For without you, we can't do anything. And it's by your grace that we stand. And so, Lord, out of the rich treasury of your word tonight, we pray that you'd give us a word from heaven. A word that would change us and shape us and mold us. And we ask that you'd help us to be pliable to your word, Lord. That we might adjust our lives more fully to you. We thank you that you knew us before there was time. That you called us with a holy calling. That we might be holy and without blemish before you in love. We pray for our eyes of our understanding to be enlightened and our heart flooded with light. And we ask this in the name above every name. The name which cannot be defeated. The name which will ring forever, Jesus. We thank you for that name. And we pray in that name tonight, expecting. Amen. Amen. If you turn with me in your Bible to the book of Second Peter. Chapter 1. Verse 2. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 2. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now what the Bible tells us is that the grace of God in our lives, the favor of God in our lives, and the peace of God in our lives can be multiplied. In other words, when we get born again, we don't automatically have all the peace that we're supposed to have. We don't automatically have a full limit of the grace of God. The Bible tells us that God's favor on our life is unmerited favor, his grace that works in our life can be multiplied. So that tomorrow we can have more grace on our lives than we do today. In a year from now, we can look back and say we've got more grace on our lives than we did last year. And the Bible also tells us that our peace can be multiplied. Which is very important in the day in which we live, in which so many people are troubled and worried and fearful that God's answer is sometimes not to get rid of the problems, but to increase our levels of peace. And so the Bible tells us that our peace can be multiplied, but it gives us a way. It doesn't just happen by going to someone's seminar. It doesn't just happen by going to church, but it is multiplied in the knowledge of Him, God, and of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what God intends is that we keep growing in peace, that we keep growing in grace, so that the things that used to bother us last year, we look back and we say, those don't trouble us much anymore. Why? Because we have changed, our level of peace has changed. How has that happened? We have got to know him better. You know, in the way in which we live today, it's very easy for some of us to lose our peace by listening to the wrong voices. I'm not saying that we should stick our head in the sands. 
but we should also have our head in the heavens. We should know who we have believed in and that he is almighty God and that he is sovereign and that he is king of the universe and he has not lost his power and he's not surprised by what we are going through individually or corporately or even nationally that God can take care of us, his children. Hallelujah. So God's grace and his peace can be multiplied. Now, God's grace is more than just a favor upon our lives. The Bible also tells us that we minister to others by the grace of God. In other words, our ministry to help others is a result of God's grace. And our ability to minister, therefore, can also be multiplied through the knowledge of Him. So I can become a better minister for the Lord through knowing Him better. God also gives grace to overcome temptation. So that the things that used to trip me up last year don't trip me up now because why? Grace has been multiplied in my life. The sins which so easily beset me before may not have been the same ones because grace has multiplied in my life. Now I can see those things and jump over them. Because God gives grace to overcome temptation. Well, it is multiplied in the knowledge of him. Let's go back to the book of Isaiah. This is my favorite verse. I probably share it every time I come. But that's okay. Isaiah chapter 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God lets us know that he understands that we don't think about things the way he does. And he tells us that we, our thoughts are earthly and his thoughts are of the heavens. They are higher than the heavens or higher than the earth and his ways are higher than our ways. But he says in verse 10, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Now here's the question. What is it that God sends his word to do? Well, the previous verse tells us what the problem is. The problem is we don't think like he thinks. And we don't do things the way he does them. So he sends his word so that he can get us to think like he thinks about things. So we can begin to do things the way he would do them. In other words, God understands that we have been trained from the time that we have been born to think on an earthly level. So God says, I understand your problem, but I've got a solution. I'm going to give you my word so that you can begin to think about things properly. So that when you face situations, you don't just face them from an earthly viewpoint. You've got a heavenly way of thinking about them. And so that you don't just act earthly. You have a heavenly way of relating to your issues and problems. 
This is why God sends his word is to change the way we think and the way we act. Because if God can change the way we think and act, he can release his grace and peace in our lives to a greater measure. Verse 12, for you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into singing before you and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. When you think about things the way God thinks about them, the Bible says you'll be led out. You'll go out with peace and joy and your mountains, your obstacles will seem like they sing to you. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. You know what this is saying? Instead of the cycle of pain to keep coming upon you, it shall stop. Instead of it just, you know, it just seems like you're on a revolving treadmill of pain and thorns and briars. When you begin to think about things the way God thinks about them. You begin to act in line with his ways. God can release peace and joy and stop the cycle. Mary and I were on the cycle of having a bad marriage. You know, having a bad marriage is very painful. You don't have to say amen. I don't want your husband or wife to get mad at you. But I know what it's like to have a painful, thorny, briar marriage. So we had to go back to find out what does God think about marriage? What are his ways? And we begin to think about marriage the way he thought about them. And we begin to implement certain ways and thorns and briars begin to disappear. Hallelujah. And joy and peace begin to come into a home that was like a, well, something else. And the Bible says, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. When we begin to think about things the way God thinks about them, it will be a sign. Hallelujah. Thank God for signs and wonders. But this is an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off is when we begin to think about things the way God thinks about them and implement certain things, it will be a wonder. You know, God has a certain way of thinking about sickness. He wants us to think about it the way he thinks about it. His way of thinking about it is that through the laying on of hands, you can remove sickness and disease. Hallelujah. Blind eyes can be opened. I didn't used to think like that. But through the knowledge of him and through the knowledge of his word, my thinking began to change. And so my ways of relating to a blind person changed. Instead of simply feeling sorry for them, I realized that Jesus Christ was their answer. And it allowed God to do what God wanted to do, which is to be a God of grace. A God of mercy. Okay, let's go back to the book of Joshua, please. Let's see if I can find this passage. Joshua. 
There's a passage in the book of Joshua where Joshua comes in contact with the leader of the Lord's armies, an angelic being. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. It says, and it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on the face of the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now, Joshua had a wrong way of relating to God. And even to God's source of help here, he was looking to it and saying, are you for us or against us? And the guy said, you're asking the wrong question. Because it's not like you should be trying to get me on your side. It's you should be carrying out that which I want done. In other words, if we're really going to have the Lord working in our lives, at some point we have to have this kind of, uh, what's the right word? This kind of coming together with God where we make the change. And we say it's not about getting God to be on our side. It's recognizing that we are a outgrowth of that which he wants done. Okay, in other words, let's say when it comes to getting someone healed from sickness. There are a lot of people who approach healing in a way of looking at sick people and feeling really bad for them and hoping that we can get God on our side. Well, really, that's a faulty way of looking at healing because healing was not our idea. It was his idea. And so he wants us to actually be releasing that which he wants released. He wants us to see ourselves as sent ones, not as people who are trying to get him to do something which he really doesn't want to do. So we got to fast and pray about it to get him to do that which he already wants to do. See, some of us, we're wasting spiritual life and energy because we have an adversarial relationship with God, which we think we got to get God interested in us somehow. God is interested in us. The Bible tells us he knew us before there was time, before he ever made this terra firma, you were on his mind. He has numbered every hair on your head. You are a significant partner in that which he wants done. But it is what he wants done. Not what we want done. So when we pray, sometimes we're praying from a perspective of trying to get him on our side. Instead of releasing that which he wants released. Because he's a God of love. A God of compassion. A God of grace, a God of mercy, slow to anger and quick to forgive. That's the God that we serve. And he wants the church to be a representation of who he is. 
See, Jesus, the Bible tells us, was an exact representation of the Father. And then Jesus said to us, he said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So he wants us to look like him and to act like him and to be a representative of him, not trying to get him to do what we want. Are you hearing me tonight? In other words, God has already concluded I'm for you, not against you. But the issue is, I'm the one that wants certain things done. So when we pray for revival, we need to pray for it in such a way that we understand that we are an outgrowth of that which he has done, which he wants to do. Rather than thinking we've got to twist his arm to get him to do that which he already wants to do. Let's turn to the book of Mark chapter 16. I've tried to get away from this, but I'm not going to. Verse 15. This is Jesus. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to every creature. Our message is good news. Hallelujah. And he who believes and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. Now notice when Jesus is talking, he is not telling the apostles that these signs will follow them. He has already been telling them that for three years. What he's telling them now is that these signs are generational. In other words, the people that you go and preach to who believe and are baptized will be saved. And these signs will follow those generation of believers. Okay. Okay? In other words, he's not telling them that the supernatural workings of God are limited to the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors and teachers. He is saying, these signs will follow the people you tell about the Lord. This is the way that God thinks. He wants his ways to be our ways. It's a heavenly way of doing things. It's a multiplication way. So he says, these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they'll cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, verse 18 is very interesting for me because for years I didn't understand it. This issue of picking up snakes. You know, I'm sorry, many of you have seen those people up in the mountains of Tennessee that grab snakes, you know. But actually, in the Greek language, to pick up serpents means to remove or to carry away. Now, let me ask you a question. In the Old Testament, what was the first sign that God gave to Moses? When Moses said, if I tell people that you said something and they don't believe me, what do I do? And God said to him, I'm going to give you some signs 
which is going to make them believe what you say. God has not changed, has he? God wants to confirm his word with signs following so that people will understand what we say is the truth. So Moses' first sign was what? Pick up a snake. Threw it down, became a snake, picked it up. And this is still one of our signs. We have been given as believers the power to remove Satan from areas of influence. We can remove him from a body. We can remove him from a situation. We can remove him from a neighborhood. We can remove him because we are believers in the Lord. You know, where I live, we have a lot of satanic power in operation. And Satan, even though he's defeated, doesn't mean that he doesn't have power. It says in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the evil one. So it doesn't mean that he doesn't have power. But what the Bible does tell us is we have the power to tread on those things. We have the power to remove those things. We have the power to overcome those things. But we must take our place by beginning to think about ourselves properly. God wants you to change the way you think about yourself. He wants you to think heavenly about yourself. He wants you to believe that you are his instrument. That he has created you with a purpose which is to bring his gospel to the world. The world which may be at your workplace, at your school, or it may be in Asia or Africa. It is all the world. But you have a mandate, but you must know that as part of the mandate, God wants to give you signs. Because if you limit the signs to the people that you see on television or the people that come and fill this pulpit, you are not thinking like God thinks. That is not what God intended, is to have a select few instruments. So God wants you to be an extension of the fact that Christianity is supernatural and powerful. Hallelujah. So if you, you know, as pastor was praying... We don't worship Jesus like we worship another hero. He's the only one. He's the only one. But we have to be careful that we don't worship men as heroes as well. Because the Bible says, James wrote in the book of James, he says, Elijah was a person just like you and I. Now, James was writing to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. He was writing to a Jewish audience in which Elijah was their hero. And James was saying to them, Elijah's no different than you. And Elijah prayed for it not to rain and it didn't rain. He prayed for it to rain and it rained. And God is trying to say, come up higher in the way you think about yourself. See, you are not an insignificant speck of dust on the earth. 
And the devil would like to plane us into a place where we are spectators. Instead of being God's instruments. You know, I like the life I live. You know, people that are blind, they get a funny look on their face when their eyes open. Pray for them. I don't know why it is, but sometimes I have to pray for them twice. You know, pray for them again, and then they say, I can see you. And then they say, I can see. You know, it's just a wonderful thing when their eyes are opened. I never thought when I was a young person growing up in the church, I mean, I dreamt about having these things happen, but they seem so impossible. But you know what God had to do for me? He had to bring my heroes down. And he had to bring Jesus to be preeminent. And then he had to elevate me to believe that God could use me in the same way that God wants to use you. See, Moses understood that potentially people wouldn't listen to what he had to say. So he said, what do I do? And God said, I got the answer. I'll give you some signs. Now, let me just talk for a second about understanding a few principles before we move on. The Bible says believers will lay hands on the sick and the sick will do what? Recover. Recover. Recovery is different than instantaneously being well, isn't it? Some people miss their healings because they don't understand that sometimes healings are a process that may take a day, an hour, three days, a week. I don't know how long. Recovery. Okay? We had a man in the Methodist church in Warren. He came and asked for prayer one night. We put our hands on him. He said he had problems with his back. We prayed for him. And about a year later, we came back to the church, and he said, I feel so bad I didn't give you my testimony. I said, well, what's your testimony? Don't feel bad. He said, well, I have di- had di- diabetes, and my legs were all scabbed over with scabs, and they were constantly breaking down. Now They were bleeding, so I'd wrap them every night to wrap scabs. And at, at night, I would take those wrappings off. I mean, I would wrap them every morning. At night, I would take those off, and he said... My eyes had gone bad, I couldn't see, and I was sitting on the side of my bed, and I unwrapped my legs, and he said, I heard what sounded like BBs hitting the ground, wooden floor. Climbed up into bed, went to sleep. He says, when I woke up in the morning and I took my bed clothes off, I realized I had all brand new skin. All the scabs had disappeared. I had the skin of a baby. He said, I never had a problem ever since. Well, that took about a week. It wasn't even what we asked to be prayed for. But that was recovery. Recovery can be pretty outstanding. Now, in praying for people that are sick, it's important to understand that some people are not in position to be prayed for sometimes. So that we don't prematurely try to do things and then end up getting disappointed. Okay? Let me give you an example. James chapter 5, it says, If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Right? 
Let them pray over him. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now what it says is it is the sick person's responsibility to ask for prayer, calling. And the call is not like, you know, can you come over? It's the call of faith. It's the call believing that something is going to happen when you come and you're prayed for. That's why you call. I have found in my own life in ministry, those that call for me to come with an expectation, my percentage level of helping them is very high. When I try to initiate, in other words, I go to the hospital and find them and say, can I pray for you? My percentage is not so high. Maybe it's 50%. And I've got gifts of healings in my life. But when they ask believing, in other words, they're calling Believing that something is going to happen, it jumps. So the Bible tells us there is a way. Okay, now let me just say this in Jesus' ministry. In Jesus' ministry, who is our example, most people were healed. The overwhelming percentage, he made reference to the fact that they were believing something. He said, do you believe I'm able to do this? They said, yes. Or some came and he said, your faith has done this, or according to your faith has done that. The majority of them were healed in response to them believing something was going to happen. However, there were some people who stepped out of that box and God initiated it as a gift. John chapter 5. Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda. There's five porches of sick people there. Jesus steps over probably hundreds of them if not dozens, and finds one sick person, heals them, and then steps back over the other sick people and leaves. Well, that's a gift of God. But the majority of people are not healed by gifts. They're healed by faith. So we must combine the two and understand how they work together. Because if we don't understand that, we get disappointed. And a lot of people have been discouraged in their faith. Can I go a step further? Sometimes in our churches, we're praying for sick people. And we don't really have authority to be able to do much about those things. In other words, they didn't come and ask us to. They didn't invite us in. We just feel a, a burden for, for them, sometimes a sympathy, not even a burden. And so we request, can you pray for auntie so-and-so that's got cancer and uncle so-and-so that's got this and so-and-so. And truthfully and honestly, when we pray for them, not much happens. And I don't know about you, but I find that discouraging. That's not how it's supposed to be. And the reason that that's not the way it's supposed to be is because that is not God's way of thinking. People do have the right to touch certain things if they have authority in those situations. Okay, in other words, the man comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is grievously sick and brings Jesus to the house. How old is the girl? She's 12. She's not an adult. Okay, she's under, still under that man's authority. 
He has authority over that child at that time. I know with my son, John, when John got to be about 15 or 16, I'd always prayed for John for be, be healed. And when he got to be, I think it was 15, I went to put my hands on him. God said, uh-uh. Now it's up to him. He's been hearing this message for years. Now he has to do something with it. And I told my son, sorry. Dad can't do it for you anymore. Now you've got to step up yourself. And my son stepped up. Praise the Lord. So God allowed parents to do for children certain issues. But you do not find extended families very much in the examples. You understand what I'm saying tonight? In other words, let's say, for instance, with my wallet. You don't have authority over my wallet, do you? Right? You would know that you, you can't touch this. This is my person. In the same way, you don't have authority arbitrarily in other people's lives to push off what you want to do in the spirit on them. Now, you can pray, and if the Holy Spirit takes hold together with you, that is something totally different. That's intercession. And the Spirit will take hold and pray through you and bring about those changes. But the reality is sometimes he's not taking hold. Isn't that true? Have you ever tried to pray for someone and there's just nothing there? Nothing. We had a lady had cancer, went to pray for her, talked to her about the Lord, talked to her, talked to her, talked to her. She never asked us to pray for her. But I tried. You know, I, I tried to encourage her in the word. Yes, can you see that? Yeah, I can see it. Still never asked. So after hours and hours, Mary and I said, can we pray for you? We went to pray for her and there was nothing there. There was no, and I said, what's wrong? Only to find out later she didn't want to be healed. She was ready to go on. See, God wants us to have regular answers. He wants this thing to work. And some of us have been discouraged and stopped praying for people because we didn't understand the way of thinking about it properly. And God wants us to go back to thinking about it properly so that we can be released again to do his will. Okay. The church is God's idea. Amen? Amen. And God has a way of thinking about the church which he wants us to understand. Now, there are a few things that the Lord just recently showed me this year which I'm going to share, which I think might be helpful for some of us. I was reading about how Solomon was building the temple in the Old Testament. And I realized the connection between us being the temple of the Lord and Solomon building the temple. Second Peter tells us that we as living stones are being built together to be a spiritual house for the Lord. Hallelujah. So the Bible says that me and you and you and you were living stones. Now in the Old Testament with Joshua, when Joshua was coming through the waters of the Jordan, he sent back into the Jordan to pull out stones. 
And those stones, when people looked at them, they were supposed to ask a question. The question is, what has happened here? And the stones were stones of testimony. In other words, the stones themselves, they didn't have mouths. The stones themselves were a witness of what God had done. Our lives by themselves are to be witnesses for the Lord. In other words, when people look at our lives, they say, what's happened here? What's happened there? What's happened there? This person has changed. They're not the same that they used to be. And it is a stone of witness. Now, Solomon intended to build a house of God, which was to be a uh, testimony to the whole world. So the Bible says he had 80,000 people that quarried stones. They went up into the mountains. They hammered on these stones. They broke them off and they came and they assembled them together. Hallelujah. Now, what the Bible is trying to tell us is that God has used sometimes hammers and chisels, sometimes people, to break us off and to bring us to assemble us together. That was his intention. So God has brought people from, I don't know, this church got so many different people in it. People from, you know, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Africa, Asia, wherever. And he's assembled them to be God's house. Now, the other thing, the second thing that Solomon did is he had 70,000 people that were burden bearers. Their job was to bear the burden for the house of God. Now, Paul tells us that we should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, when it says bear one another's burdens, it says in two different places. One means to carry someone's burden away. But the best one that I like means to stake yourself to someone. You know how you have a tomato plant and you put a stake there and so that the weak tomato plant gets a chance to become strong? It's staked. So what Paul is actually saying is, in the house of God, there is a need for burden bearers. There's a need for people who will stake themselves to others. One of the greatest needs in the body of Christ may not to be more preachers, but we need more burden bearers. See, you don't have to have a, go to Bible school to be a burden bearer. You don't have to be the richest person in the earth to be a burden bearer. What you do need to have is you have to have a heart of love which cares about someone more than yourself. So many people are sitting in churches, and maybe this is not one of them. Many people are sitting in churches wondering, what do I do? Well, some of you have to stake yourself to someone. Because there are many people in churches who feel completely alone. They feel like they're going through what they're going through by themselves. And they wonder, does anyone even notice me? Has anyone taken an interest in me? No one even knows my name. I sit next to the same people every week in church and I don't even know them.
But what God needs is for people to stake themselves to each other. When people come to the altar and give their lives to the Lord, you know what their biggest need is? A stake. They need someone to come and say, you know what? Thank God you're saved. And I want you to know you won't be alone. I'm going to be praying for you. I'm going to be standing with you. Because that is necessary for some people to succeed. Many of us know what it was like to be, feel like we were by ourselves on our spiritual journey. We know the pain of that. We know how lonely we have felt. And it is our God-given thought that God wants to give us to say, you have experienced that, now be part of the answer. Don't complain about the problem. I'm going to stake myself to someone. Why? Because one person in a church cannot stake themselves to everyone. If you're expecting the pastor to stake himself to everyone, it's just not a physical possibility. I know. I've got three churches. They're not big churches, but I, even those, I cannot stake myself to everyone. But if God can re- make us realize that we are his spiritual house and we can do it together so that we can be a testimony to the world. Because, you know, whether it's modernism or postmodernism or whatever it is, you know what people are looking for? They are looking for love. And the Bible says they should know us by our love. I'm all for signs and wonders. That's part of our love. But sometimes people just need someone to stand with them. You know, when I first started coming to the church... I was going to a church in Coventry, Rhode Island. We were traveling about an hour to go to church. And I was a very, very, very shy young person. Church was a very uncomfortable place for me. I had two fears in church. One, when church got over, that someone would speak to me. My second fear was that no one would speak to me. So my way of dealing with that, when church was over, and, you know, my sister and my mom, you know, and they're friendly people, you know, they're talking to people. I'd head for the door. You know, I just want to be out of there. Why? I'm uncomfortable. I'm wondering. Is anyone going to talk to me? I won't know what to say. Maybe no one will talk to me, and I hate that feeling of being invisible. And in that church, there was a black man. There was probably only two or three black people in the church, he noticed that 13-year-old kid heading for the door. And he began to meet me at the back door. And he began to talk to me about basketball and sports and school and things that I enjoyed. And you know what happened to me? I began to look forward to going to church, not just to hear the sermon, but to talk to that man. He made me comfortable in the house of God. He staked himself to me. When I came off the mission field for our marriage and, you know, it looked like we were a failure in so many people's eyes because, you know, our marriage was on the rocks and we were coming home to say we're stepping away to get things sorted out. I remember going to my own home church in Massachusetts and telling everyone and then going and sitting, you know, near the back row and, you know, I was crying and I felt about this big. And as I got up to leave the church, 
The man that sat on the back row, he grabbed me by the arm. He looked me in the eyes and he said, Rob, I'm standing with you. I believe in you. You're going to come through this. Know that I'm going to be praying for you. I'm standing with you. And you know at that time, he did more for me than anyone else. Any sermon that I ever heard, he staked himself to me. Because at that time in my life, it would have been easy to give up. But thank God someone stepped forward. Someone stepped forward to a person that had been to Africa for six years and had seen the sick healed, but was in a state of weakness. See, the thing that we have to understand is just because someone has been strong in the Lord for years doesn't mean they don't come through seasons when they need someone to stake themselves to them. And you have the ability to stake yourself to someone. Let me just share this last scripture and I'll close for tonight. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 25. It's one of my favorite passages as a pastor. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But I realized that that was just part of the passage. When I was younger, before we made the transition to another church, we were going to the Catholic church. And in the Catholic church, for at least from my perspective as a young person, the challenge was to go to church on Sunday. And if I went to church on Sunday, it basically I could check it off and say I had done my part. Some of us still have a way of thinking like that. I go and I listen and I've done my duty. But that is not what this verse says. It says, do not forsake the assembling together of yourselves together. Okay, in other words, yes, that's part of it. But exhort one another as you see the day approaching. In other words, don't just check yourself off for going but be involved in trying to draw others closer to the Lord. Now, the, like, the verse I really like is, Solomon, besides having people that quarried stone and carried burdens, had people that he called overseers. And their job was to make sure that the work went forward. Now, listen to what it says in verse 24. It says, and let us consider one another. In order to stir up love and good works. This word consider means scrutinize. Writing to the church he's saying. It is your. Can I say. God given. Opportunity. To get to know people enough. That you can stir them up. To love and good works. In other words, it's not enough just to go to church. God is saying, get to know each other. And then get to know each other enough so that you can know how to push the right buttons with people to provoke them, not to anger, but to provoke them to love and to do more for the Lord. 
In other words, sometimes in churches, there are many people who have gone cold or stale or tired. And they have stopped doing things that they used to do, which used to bring life to them. But through discouragement or hurt or disappointment, they have stopped. And what they need is someone to get to know them enough to say, hey, come on. There's more to you than that. I can see that in you. You can do it. You can bring change. Get up, brother. I'm standing with you. Let's move forward. Because there's some intercessors that are not intercessors anymore. There are tenders, spectators. There's some people that used to pray for the sick. They don't pray for the sick anymore. There's some people that used to teach Sunday school or the children. They don't do it anymore. They need people to get to know them, to provoke them to love and good works. Even myself. You know, I need people to know me enough to say, hey, you can do more. Or sometimes to say, hey, slow down a little bit so that you can do more. If God's house is to be built the way it is supposed to be built, can I say to you tonight, we need more burden bearers. And we need more people to get to know one another, to push the right buttons, to get more out of people for the Lord's sake. I'm not talking about driving people to do something. I'm talking about getting to know people enough so that you can speak to their heart and revive that which is in them. Husbands can do that for wives. Wives can do that for husbands sometimes. Sometimes we need outsiders. But God intends to build his house. You know, I realize after being in Africa for some time that the church is not just built by miracles. Thank God we've had many. But where the church is really built is when the members of the church, everyone does his share. Because everyone has something to give. And it is more than giving money. It is the grace of God that is in your life. Some of you, you've gone through experiences, you've passed through difficult times, you made it, you survived. And there are people who don't know that they can survive. They need someone to look them in the eye and say, you're going to come through. And I'm going to be with you. Or I'm going to be praying for you. And then really pray. Or to say, you know what, I see in you the ability to do this or that. You know, my wife now in, in Africa, she's got a ladies' ministry that functions in a couple different cities. She didn't believe that she could do that. So I had to push her in the right way to provoke her to believe that she could so that she could.
what if there was 300 or 400 or 600 or 1,000 people living like I'm talking about tonight? Every joint supplying. The body being knit together in love. So that nothing can pull it apart. Why? Because we love one another. We see the value in each other. We provoke one another in all the right ways. But it means that we have to trade in our old ways of thinking about church life and about my life and about what I want. And I've got to sometimes deny myself to do my part and take up my cross. And let me just tell you beforehand, sometimes the people you try to help sometimes hurt you in the process. Don't let that stop you from doing the right thing. That's what the cross is all about. You know, sometimes the very purpose that you help the most sometimes bites you because they're hurt and wounded. Truly, very few have terrible, terrible motives. There are a few of those kinds of people. Most people are just hurting and not understanding. You know, Jesus even has said himself, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Right? So this is Jesus' mindset. Most people don't know what they're doing when they're crucifying you. So don't think that they do. Most of them don't. So keep loving them. And the thing is, as you play your part in the spiritual house, there's fulfillment there. There's joy there. Because if you get off by yourself, that's not where you're supposed to be. The body of Christ needs you. There are people that need you. Bring your grace closer. Stake yourself to someone.